Chapter 12 of Essays in Experimental Logic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Essays in Experimental Logic by John Dewey. Chapter 12 What Pragmatism Means by Practical. Pragmatism, according to Mr. James, is a temper of mind, an attitude. It is also a theory of the nature of ideas and truth, and, finally, it is a theory about reality. It is pragmatism as method which is emphasized, I take it, in the subtitle, quote, A New Name for Some Old Ways of Thinking, unquote. It is this aspect which I suppose to be uppermost in Mr. James's own mind. One frequently gets the impression that he conceives the discussion of the other two points to be illustrative material more or less hypothetical, of the method. The briefest and at the same time the most comprehensive formula for the method is, quote, the attitude of looking away from first things, principles, categories, supposed necessities, and of looking toward last things, fruits, consequences, facts, unquote. Pages 54 and 55. And as the attitude looked, quote, away from, unquote, is the rationalistic, Perhaps the chief aim of the lectures is to exemplify some typical differences resulting from taking one outlook or the other. But pragmatism is, quote, used in a still wider sense, as meaning also a certain theory of truth, unquote, page 55. It is, quote, a genetic theory of what is meant by truth, unquote, page 65. Truth means, as a matter of course, agreement, correspondence, of idea and fact, page 198. But what do agreement, correspondence, mean? With rationalism, they mean, quote, a static inert relation, unquote, which is so ultimate that of it nothing more can be said. With pragmatism, they signify the guiding or leading power of ideas by which we, quote, dip into the particulars of experience again, unquote, and if by its aid we set up the arrangements and connections among experienced objects which the idea intends, the idea is verified. It corresponds with the things it means to square with. Pages 205 and 6. The idea is true which works in leading us to what it purports. Page 80. Or, quote, any idea that will carry us prosperously from any one part of experience to any other part, linking things satisfactorily, working securely, simplifying, saving labor, is true for just so much. True in so far forth, unquote. Page 58. This notion presupposes that ideas are essentially intentions, plans, and methods, and that what they, as ideas, ultimately intend is prospective, certain changes in prior existing things. This contrasts again with rationalism, with its copy theory, where ideas, as ideas, are ineffective and impotent, since they mean only to mirror a reality, page 69, complete without them. Thus we are led to the third aspect of pragmatism. The alternative between rationalism and pragmatism, quote, concerns the structure of the universe itself, unquote, page 258. Quote, the essential contrast is that reality, for pragmatism, is still in the making, unquote, page 257. And in a recent number of the Journal of Philosophy, Psychology, and Scientific Methods, he says, quote, 
I was primarily concerned in my lectures with contrasting the belief that the world is still in the process of making with the belief that there is an eternal edition of it ready-made and complete." Unquote. 1. It will be following Mr. James's example, I think, if we here regard pragmatism as primarily a method, and treat the account of ideas and their truth and of reality somewhat incidentally, so far as the discussion of them serves to exemplify or enforce the method, regarding the attitude of orientation which looks to outcomes and consequences, one readily sees that it has, as Mr. James points out, points of contact with historic empiricism, nominalism, and utilitarianism. It insists that general notions shall, quote, cash in, unquote, as particular objects and qualities in experience, that, quote, principles, unquote, are ultimately subsumed under facts, rather than the reverse, that the empirical consequence, rather than the a priori basis, is the sanctioning and warranting factor. But all of these ideas are colored and transformed by the dominant influence of experimental science, the method of treating conceptions, theories, etc., as working hypotheses, as directors for certain experiments and experimental observations. Pragmatism as attitude represents what Mr. Peirce has happily termed the, quote, laboratory habit of mind, unquote, extended into every area where inquiry may fruitfully be carried on. A scientist would, I think, wonder not so much at the method as at the lateness of philosophy's conversion to what has made science what it is. Nevertheless, it is impossible to forecast the intellectual change that would proceed from carrying the method sincerely and unreservedly into all fields of inquiry. Leaving philosophy out of account, what a change would be wrought in the historical and social sciences, in the conceptions of politics and law and political economy. Mr. James does not claim too much when he says, quote, The center of gravity of philosophy must alter its place. The earth of things, long thrown into shadow by the glories of the upper ether, must resume its rights. It will be an alteration of the seat of authority that reminds one almost of the Protestant Reformation, unquote page 123. I can imagine that many would not accept this method in philosophy for very diverse reasons, perhaps among the most potent of which is lack of faith in the power of the elements and processes of experience and life to guarantee their own security and prosperity, because, that is, of the feeling that the world of experience is so unstable, mistaken, and fragmentary that it must have an absolutely permanent, true, and complete ground. I cannot imagine, however, that so much uncertainty and controversy as actually exists should arise about the content and import of the doctrine on the basis of the general formula. It is when the method is applied to special points that questions arise. Mr. James reminds us in his preface that the pragmatic movement has found expression, quote, from so many points of view that much unconcerted statement has resulted, unquote. And, speaking of his lectures, he goes on to say, quote, I have sought to unify the picture as it presents itself to my own eyes, dealing in broad strokes, unquote. The, quote, different points of view, unquote, here spoken of, have concerned themselves with viewing pragmatically a number of different things. And it is, I think, Mr. James's effort to combine them as they stand, which occasions misunderstanding among Mr. James's readers. Mr. James himself applied it, for example, in 1898 to philosophic controversies to indicate what they mean in terms of practical issues at stake, 
before that, Mr. Peirce himself, in 1878, had applied the method to the proper way of conceiving and defining objects. Then it has been applied to ideas in order to find out what they mean in terms of what they intend, and what and how they must intend in order to be true. Again, it has been applied to beliefs, to what men actually accept, hold to, and affirm. Indeed, it lies in the nature of pragmatism that it should be applied as widely as possible, and to things as diverse as controversies, beliefs, truths, ideas, and objects. But yet the situations and problems are diverse, so much so that while the meaning of each may be told on the basis of last things, fruits, consequences, facts, it is quite certain that the specific last things and facts will be very different in the diverse cases, and that very different types of meaning will stand out. Meaning will itself mean something quite different in the case of objects from what it will mean in the case of ideas, and for ideas, something different from truths. Now the explanation to which I have been led of the unsatisfactory condition of contemporary pragmatic discussion is that in composing these different points of view into a single pictorial whole, the distinct type of consequence and hence the meaning of practical appropriate to each has not been sufficiently emphasized. 1. When we consider separately the subjects to which the pragmatic method has been applied, we find that Mr. James has provided the necessary formula for each, with his never-failing instinct for the concrete. We take first the question of the significance of an object, the meaning which should properly be contained in its conception or definition. Quote, to attain perfect clearness in our thoughts of an object, then, we need only consider what conceivable effects of a practical kind the object may involve, what sensations we are to expect from it, and what reactions we must prepare. Unquote. Pages 46 and 47. Or, more shortly, as it is quoted from Ostwald, quote, All realities influence our practice, and that influence is their meaning for us. Unquote. Page 48. Here it will be noted that the start is from objects already empirically given or presented, existentially vouched for, and the question is as to their proper conception. What is the proper meaning or idea of an object? And the meaning is the effects these given objects produce. One might doubt the correctness of this theory, but I do not see how one could doubt its import, or could accuse it of subjectivism or idealism, since the object with its power to produce effects is assumed. Meaning is expressly distinguished from objects not confused with them, as in idealism, and is said to consist in the practical reactions objects exact of us or impose on us. When, then, it is a question of an object, meaning signifies its conceptual content or connotation, and practical means the future responses which an object requires of us or commits us to. 2. But we may also start from a given idea and ask what the idea means. Pragmatism will, of course, look to future consequences, but they will clearly be of a different sort when we start from an idea as idea than when we start from an object. For what an idea as idea means is precisely that an object is not given. The pragmatic procedure here is to set the idea, quote, at work within the stream of experience. It appears less as a solution than as a program for mere work and particularly as an indication of the ways in which existing realities may be changed, 
Theories, thus, become instruments. We don't lie back on them. We move forward, and, on occasion, make nature over again by their aid. Unquote. Page 53. In other words, an idea is a draft drawn upon existing things, and intention to act so as to arrange them in a certain way, from which it follows that if the draft is honored, if existences, following upon the actions, rearrange or readjust themselves in the way the idea intends, the idea is true. When, then, it is a question of an idea, it is the idea itself which is practical, being an intent, and its meaning resides in the existences which, as changed, it intends. While the meaning of an object is the changes it requires in our attitude, the meaning of an idea is the changes it, as our attitude, effects in object. 3. Then we have another formula, applicable not to objects nor ideas as objects and ideas, but to truths, to things, that is, where the meaning of the object and of the idea is assumed to be already ascertained. It reads, quote, What difference would it practically make to anyone if this notion rather than that notion were true? If no practical difference whatever can be traced, then the alternatives mean practically the same thing and all dispute is idle, unquote, page 45. There can be, quote, no difference in abstract truth that doesn't express itself in a difference in concrete fact, and in conduct consequent upon the fact imposed on somebody, unquote, page 50. Now when we start with something which is already a truth, or taken to be a truth, and ask for its meaning in terms of its consequences, it is implied that the conception or conceptual significance, is already clear, and that the existences it refers to are already in hand. Meaning here, then, can be neither the connotative nor denotative reference of a term. They are covered by the two prior formulae. Meaning here means value, importance. The practical factor is, then, the worth character of these consequences. They are good or bad, desirable or undesirable, or merely nil indifferent, in which latter case belief is idle, the controversy a vain and conventional or verbal one. The term meaning and the term practical, taken in isolation and without explicit definition from their specific context and problem, are triply ambiguous. The meaning may be the conception or definition of an object. It may be the denotative existential reference of an idea. It may be actual value or importance. So practical in the corresponding cases may mean the attitudes and conduct exacted of us by objects, or the capacity and tendency of an idea to effect changes in prior existences, or the desirable and undesirable quality of certain ends. The general pragmatic attitude, nonetheless, is applied in all cases. If the differing problems and the correlative diverse significations of the terms meaning and practical are borne in mind, not all will be converted to pragmatism. But the present uncertainty as to what pragmatism is, anyway, and the present constant complaints on both sides of misunderstanding will, I think, be minimized. At all events, I have reached the conclusion that what the pragmatic movement just now wants is a clear and consistent bearing in mind of these different problems and of what is meant by practical in each. Accordingly, the rest of this paper is an endeavor to elucidate from the standpoint of pragmatic method the importance of enforcing these distinctions. 2. First, 
As to the problems of philosophy when pragmatically approached, Mr. James says, quote, The whole function of philosophy ought to be to find out what definite difference it will make to you and me, a definite instance of our life, if this world formula or that world formula be true. Unquote. Page 50. Here the world formula is assumed as already given. It is there, defined and constituted, and the question is as to its import if believed. But from the second standpoint, that of ideas working hypothesis, the chief function of philosophy is not to find out what difference ready-made formulae make, if true, but to arrive at and to clarify their meaning as programs of behavior for modifying the existent world. From this standpoint, the meaning of a world formula is practical and moral, not merely in the consequences which flow from accepting a certain conceptual content as true, but as regards that content itself. And thus, at the very outset, we are compelled to face this question. Does Mr. James employ the pragmatic method to discover the value in terms of consequences and life of some formula which has its logical content already fixed? Or does he employ it to criticize and revise and, ultimately, to constitute the meaning of that formula? If it is the first, there is danger that the pragmatic method will be employed only to vivify, if not validate, doctrines which in themselves are pieces of rationalistic metaphysics, not inherently pragmatic. If the last, there is danger that some readers will think old notions are being confirmed, when in truth they are being translated into new and inconsistent notions. Consider the case of design. Mr. James begins with accepting a ready-made notion, to which he then applies the pragmatic criterion. The traditional notion is that of a, quote, seeing force that runs things, unquote. This is rationalistically and retrospectively empty. Its being there makes no difference. This seems to overlook the fact that the past world may be just what it is in virtue of the difference which a blind force or a seeing force has already made in it. A pragmatist as well as a rationalist may reply that it makes no difference retrospectively only because we leave out the most important retrospective difference. But, quote, Returning with it into experience, we gain a more confiding outlook on the future. If not a blind force, but a seeing force runs things, we may reasonably expect better issues. This vague confidence in the future is the sole pragmatic meaning at present discernible in the terms design and designer, unquote. page 115, italics mine. Now, is this meaning intended to replace the meaning of a, quote, seeing force which runs things, unquote? Or is it intended to superadd a pragmatic value and validation to that concept of a seeing force? Or does it mean that, irrespective of the existence of any such object, a belief in it has that value? Strict pragmatism would seem to require the first interpretation. The same difficulties arise in the discussion of spiritualistic theism versus materialism. Compare the two following statements, quote, The notion of God guarantees an ideal order that shall be permanently preserved, unquote, page 106. Quote, Here, then, in these different emotional and practical appeals, in these adjustments of our attitudes of hope and expectation, and all the delicate consequences which their differences entail, lie the real meanings of materialism and spiritualism, unquote, page 107, italics mine. 
Does the latter method of determining the meaning of, say, a spiritual god afford the substitute for the conception of him as a superhuman power, affecting the eternal preservation of something? Does it, that is, define God, supply the context for our notion of God? Or does it merely superadd a value to a meaning already fixed? And, if the latter, does the object, God as defined, or the notion, or the belief, the acceptance of the notion, affect these consequent values? In either of the latter alternatives, the good valuable consequences cannot clarify the meaning or conception of God, for, by the argument, they proceed from a prior definition of God. They cannot prove, or render more probable, the existence of such a being, for, by the argument, these desirable consequences depend upon accepting such an existence, and not even pragmatism can prove an existence from desirable consequences which themselves exist only when and if that other existence is there. On the other hand, if the pragmatic method is not applied simply to tell the value of a belief or controversy, but to fix the meaning of the terms involved in the belief, resulting consequences would serve to constitute the entire meaning, intellectual as well as practical, of the terms, and hence the pragmatic method would simply abolish the meaning of an antecedent power which will perpetuate eternally some existence. For that consequence flows not from the belief or idea, but from the existence, the power. It is not pragmatic at all. Accordingly, when Mr. James says, quote, other than its practical significance, the words God, free will, design, have none. Yet dark though they be in themselves, or intellectualistically taken, when we bear them on to life's thicket with us, the darkness then grows light about us. Unquote. Page 121, italics mine. What is meant? Is it meant that when we take the intellectualistic notion and employ it, it gets value in the way of results, and hence then has some value of its own? Or is it meant that the intellectual content itself must be determined in terms of the changes effected in the ordering of life's thicket? An explicit declaration on this point would settle, I think, not merely a point interesting in itself, but one essential to the determination of what is pragmatic method. For myself, I have no hesitation in saying that it seems unpragmatic for pragmatism to content itself with finding out the value of a conception whose own inherent significance pragmatism has not first determined, a fact which entails that it be taken not as a truth but simply as a working hypothesis. In the particular case in question, moreover, it is difficult to see how the pragmatic method could possibly be applied to a notion of eternal perpetuation, which, by its nature, can never be empirically verified, or cached in any particular case. This brings us to the question of truth. The problem here is also ambiguous in advance of definition. Does the problem of what is truth refer to discovering the true meaning of something, or to discovering what an idea has to affect and how in order to be true, or to discovering what the value of truth is when it is an existent and accomplished fact? 1. We may of course find the true meaning of a thing as distinct from its incorrect interpretation, without thereby establishing the truth of the true meaning, as we may dispute about the true meaning of a passage in the classics concerning centaurs, without the determination of its true sense establishing the truth of the notion that there are centaurs.
Occasionally this true meaning seems to be what Mr. James has in mind as when, after the passage upon design already quoted, he goes on, quote, But if cosmic confidence is right, not wrong, better, not worse, that vague confidence in the future is a most important meaning, that much at least of possible truth the terms will have in them, unquote, page 115. Truth here seems to mean that design has a genuine, not merely conventional or verbal meaning, that something is at stake. There are frequently points where truth seems to mean just meaning that is genuine as distinct from empty or verbal. 2. But the problem of the meaning of truth may also refer to the meaning or value of truths that already exist as truths. We have them, they exist, now what do they mean? The answer is, quote, true ideas lead us into useful verbal and conceptual quarters, as well as directly up to useful sensible termini. They lead to consistency, stability, and flowing human intercourse, unquote, page 215. This, referring to things already true, I do not suppose the most case-hardened rationalist would question. And even if he questions the pragmatic contention that the consequences define the meaning of truth, he should see that here is not given an account of what it means for an idea to become true, but only of what it means after it has become true. Truth as fait accompli. It is the meaning of truth as fait accompli which is here defined. Bearing this in mind, I do not know why a mild-tempered rationalist should object to the doctrine that truth is not valuable per se, but because, when given, it leads to desirable consequences. Quote, a true thought is useful here because the home which is its object is useful. The practical value of true ideas is thus primarily derived from the practical importance of their objects to us. Unquote. Page 203. And many besides confirmed pragmatists, and a utilitarian for example, would be willing to say that our duty to pursue truth is conditioned upon its leading to objects which upon the whole are valuable. Quote, the concrete benefits we gain are what we mean by calling the pursuit a duty, unquote. Page 231, compare, page 76. 3. Difficulties have arisen chiefly because Mr. James is charged with converting simply the foregoing proposition, and arguing that since true ideas are good, any idea if good in any way is true. Certainly, transition from one of these conceptions to the other is facilitated by the fact that ideas are tested as to their validity by a certain goodness, viz., whether they are good for accomplishing what they intend, for what they claim to be good for, that is, certain modifications in prior given existences. In this case, it is the idea which is practical, since it is essentially an intent and plan of altering prior existences in a specific situation which is indicated to be unsatisfactory by the very fact that it needs or suggests a specific modification. Then arises the theory that ideas as ideas are always working hypotheses concerning the attaining of particular empirical results, and are tentative programs or sketches of method for attaining them. If we stick consistently to this notion of ideas, only consequences which are actually produced by the working of the idea in cooperation with, or application to, prior existences are, 
good consequences in the specific sense of good which is relevant to establishing the truth of an idea. This is, at times, unequivocally recognized by Mr. James. See, for example, the reference to verification on page 201, the acceptance of the idea that verification means the advent of the object intended on page 205. But at other times, any good which flows from acceptance of a belief is treated as if it were an evidence, in so far, of the truth of the idea. This holds particularly when theological notions are under consideration. Light would be thrown upon how Mr. James conceives this matter by statements on such points as these. If ideas terminate in good consequences, but yet the goodness of the consequences was no part of the intention of an idea, does the goodness have any verifying force? If the goodness of consequences arises from the context of the idea in belief, rather than from the idea itself, does it have any verifying force? If an idea leads to consequences which are good in the one respect, only of fulfilling the intent of the idea, as when one drinks a liquid to test the idea that it is a poison, does the badness of the consequences in every other respect detract from the verifying force of consequences? Since Mr. James has referred to me as saying, quote, truth is what gives satisfaction, unquote, page 234, I may remark, apart from the fact that I do not think I ever said that truth is what gives satisfaction, that I have never identified any satisfaction with the truth of an idea save that satisfaction which arises when the idea as working hypothesis or tentative method is applied to prior existences in such a way as to fulfill what it intends. My final impression, which I cannot adequately prove, is that upon the whole Mr. James is most concerned to enforce, as against rationalism, two conclusions about the character of truths as fates accomplis, namely, that they are made not a priori, or eternally in existence, and that their value or importance is not static, but dynamic and practical. The special question of how truths are made is not particularly relevant to this anti-rationalistic crusade, while it is the chief question of interest to many. Because of this conflict of problems, what Mr. James says about the value of truth when accomplished is likely to be interpreted by some as a criterion of the truth of ideas, while, on the other hand, Mr. James himself is likely to pass lightly from the consequences that determine the worth of a belief to those which decide the worth of an idea. When Mr. James says the function of giving, quote, satisfaction in marrying previous parts of experience with newer parts, unquote, is necessary in order to establish truth, the doctrine is unambiguous. The satisfactory character of consequences is itself measured and defined by the conditions which led up to it. The inherently satisfactory quality of results is not taken as validating the antecedent intellectual operations. But when he says, not of his own position, but an opponent's, of the idea of an absolute, quote, so far as it affords such comfort, it surely is not sterile. It has that amount of value. It performs a concrete function. As a good pragmatist, I myself ought to call the absolute true in so far forth, then, and I unhesitatingly now do so, unquote, page 73. The doctrine seems to be as unambiguous in the other direction, that any good, consequent upon acceptance of a belief is, in so far forth, 
a warrant of truth. In such passages as the following, which are of the common type, the two notions seem blended together. Quote, Ideas become true just insofar as they help us to get into satisfactory relations with other parts of our experience, unquote, page 58. And again, on the same page, quote, any idea that will carry us prosperously from any one part of our experience to any other part, linking things satisfactorily, working securely, simplifying, saving labor, is true for just so much, unquote, italics mine. An explicit statement as to whether the carrying function, the linking of things, is satisfactory and prosperous and hence true insofar as it executes the intent of an idea, or whether the satisfaction and prosperity reside in the material consequences on their own account and in that aspect make the idea true, would, I am sure, locate the point at issue, and economize and fructify further discussion. At present, pragmatism is accepted by those whose own notions are thoroughly rationalistic in makeup as a means of refurbishing, galvanizing, and justifying those very notions. It is rejected by non-rationalists, empiricists, and naturalistic idealists because it seems to them identified with a notion that pragmatism holds that the desirability of certain beliefs overrides the question of the meaning of the ideas involved in them and the existence of objects denoted by them. Others, like myself, who believe thoroughly in pragmatism as a method of orientation, as defined by Mr. James, and who would apply the method of the determination of the meaning of objects, the intent and worth of ideas as ideas, and to the human and moral value of beliefs, when these various problems are carefully distinguished from one another, do not know whether they are pragmatists in some other sense, because they are not sure whether the practical, in the sense of desirable facts which define the worth of a belief, is confused with the practical as an attitude imposed by objects, and with the practical as a power and function of ideas to effect changes in prior existences. Hence the importance of knowing which one of the three senses of practical is conveyed in any given passage. It would do Mr. James an injustice, however, to stop here. His real doctrine is that a belief is true when it satisfies both personal needs and the requirements of objective things. Speaking of pragmatism, he says, quote, Her only test of probable truths is what works best in the way of leading us, what fits every part of life best and combines with the collectivity of experiences demands, nothing being omitted. Page 80, italics mine. And again, quote, that new idea's truest, which performs most felicitously its function of satisfying our double urgency, unquote. Page 64. It does not appear certain from the context that this double urgency is that of the personal and the objective demands, respectively, but it is probable. See also page 217, where consistency with previous truth and novel fact is said to be always the most imperious claimant. On this basis, the in-so-far-forth of the truth of the absolute because of the comfort it supplies means that one of the two conditions which need to be satisfied has been met, so that if the idea of the absolute met the other one also, it would be quite true. I have no doubt this is Mr. James's meaning, and it sufficiently safeguards him from the charge that pragmatism means that anything which is agreeable is true. At the same time, I do not think, in logical strictness, 
that satisfying one of two tests, when satisfaction of both is required, can be said to constitute a belief true even in so far forth. 3. At all events, this raises a question not touched so far. The place of the personal in the determination of truth. Mr. James, for example, emphasizes the doctrine suggested in the following words. Quote, we say this theory solves it, the problem, more satisfactorily than that theory. But that means more satisfactorily to ourselves. And individuals will emphasize their points of satisfaction differently. Unquote. Page 61, Italics Mine. This opens out into a question which, in its larger aspects, the place of the personal factor in the constitution of knowledge systems and of reality, I cannot here enter upon, save to say that a synthetic pragmatism such as Mr. James has ventured upon will take a very different form according as the point of view of what he calls the Chicago School, or that of humanism is taken as a basis for interpreting the nature of the personal. According to the latter view, the personal appears to be ultimate and unanalyzable, the metaphysically real. Associations with idealism, moreover, give it an idealistic turn, a translation, in effect, of monistic intellectualistic idealism into pluralistic voluntaristic idealism. But according to the former, the personal is not ultimate, but is to be analyzed and defined, biologically on its genetic side, ethically on its perspective and functioning side. There is, however, one phase of the teaching illustrated by the quotation which is directly relevant here, because Mr. James recognizes that the personal element enters into judgments passed upon whether a problem has or has not been satisfactorily solved, he is charged with extreme subjectivism, with encouraging the element of personal preference to run roughshod over all objective controls. Now the question raised in the quotation is primarily one of fact, not of doctrine, is or is not a personal factor found in truth evaluations? If it is, pragmatism is not responsible for introducing it. If it is not, it ought to be possible to refute pragmatism by appeal to empirical fact, rather than by reviling it for subjectivism. Now, it is an old story that philosophers, in common with theologians and social theorists, are as sure that personal habits and interests shape their opponents' doctrines, as they are that their own beliefs are absolutely universal and objective in quality. Hence arises that dishonesty, that insincerity characteristic of philosophic discussion. As Mr. James says, page 8, quote, the most potential of all our premises is never mentioned, unquote. Now, the moment the complicity of the personal factor in our philosophic valuations is recognized fully, frankly, and generally, that moment a new era in philosophy will begin, we shall have to discover the personal factors that now influence us unconsciously and begin to accept a new and moral responsibility for them, a responsibility for judging and testing them by their consequences. So long as we ignore this factor, its deeds will be largely evil, not because it is evil, but because, flourishing in the dark, it is without responsibility and without check. The only way to control it is by recognizing it. And while I would not prophesy of pragmatism's future, I would say that this element, which is now so generally condemned as intellectual dishonesty, perhaps because of an uneasy instinctive recognition of the searching of hearts its acceptance would involve, will in the future be accounted unto philosophy for righteousness's sake.
so much in general. In particular cases, it is possible that Mr. James's language occasionally leaves the impression that the fact of the inevitable involution of the personal factor in every belief gives some special sanction to some special belief. Mr. James says that his essay on the right to believe was unluckily entitled the, quote, will to believe, unquote, page 258. Well, even the term right is unfortunate if the personal or belief factor is inevitable. Unfortunate because it seems to indicate a privilege which might be exercised in special cases, in religion, for example, though not in science, or because it suggests to some minds that the fact of the personal complicity involved in belief is a warrant for this or that special personal attitude, instead of being a warning to locate and define it so as to accept responsibility for it. If we mean by will, not something deliberate and consciously intentional, much less something insincere, but an active personal participation, then belief as will, rather than either the right or the will to believe, seems to phrase the matter correctly. I have attempted to review not so much Mr. James's book as the present status of the pragmatic movement which is expressed in the book, and I have selected only those points which seem to bear directly upon matters of contemporary controversy. Even as an account of this limited field, the foregoing pages do an injustice to Mr. James, save as it is recognized that his lectures were popular lectures, as the title page advises us. We cannot expect in such lectures the kind of explicitness which would satisfy the professional and technical interests that have inspired this review. Moreover, it is inevitable that the attempt to compose different points of view, hitherto uncoordinated, into a single whole should give rise to problems foreign to any one factor of the synthesis left to itself. The need and possibility of the discrimination of various elements in the pragmatic meaning of practical, attempted in this review, would hardly have been recognized by me were it not for the by-products of perplexity and confusion which Mr. James's combination has effected. Mr. James has given so many evidences of the sincerity of his intellectual aims that I trust to his pardon for the injustice which the character of my review may have done him, in view of whatever service it may render in clarifying the problem to which he is devoted. As for the book itself, it is in any case beyond a critic's praise or blame, it is more likely to take place as a philosophical classic than any other writing of our day. A critic who should attempt to appraise it would probably give one more illustration of the sterility of criticism compared with the productiveness of creative genius. Even those who dislike pragmatism can hardly fail to find much of profit in the exhibition of Mr. James's instinct for concrete facts, the breadth of his sympathies, and his illuminating insights. Unreserved frankness, lucid imagination, varied contacts with life digested into summary and trenchant conclusions, keen perceptions of human nature in the concrete, a constant sense of the subordination of philosophy to life, capacity to put things into an English which projects ideas as if bodily into space till they are solid things to walk around and survey from different sides. These things are not so common in philosophy that they may not smell sweet even by the name of pragmatism. End of chapter 12